San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 19, Episode 3. Freedom. Are we as free as we think? In conversation with Ian Vasquez of the Cato Institute and co-author of the Human Freedom Index published by Cato and the Fraser Institute. The Human Freedom Index presents the state of human freedom in the world based on a broad measure that encompasses personal, civil, and economic freedoms. The top 10 most free countries in the world in descending order are Switzerland, New Zealand, Estonia, Denmark, Ireland, Sweden, Iceland, Finland, and Luxembourg. You heard that right. The United States does not make the top 10. In fact, we're actually number 23. Our neighbor to the north, Canada, is number 13. The United Kingdom is number 20. Germany is 18. And surprisingly, France is number 42. Joining us today from the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., is Ian Vasquez. Hi, Ian, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Ian, please share your biography with us. Well, I am the Vice President for International Studies at the Cato Institute, where I also direct our Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, which looks at the state of human rights and economic reforms in countries around the world and tries to come up with policy recommendations to to solve some of the most pressing problems in the developing world and, and internationally. I am originally from Peru. My mother is from Wisconsin. My father is from Peru, and I have been traveling back and forth between those two countries all of my life, and I'm still very engaged in what goes on there for many years. I was a columnist in the major newspaper in Peru, where I wrote about local things and regional matters. I went to Northwestern University undergrad, and at the graduate level, I went to the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins and have been working on a whole set of issues related to economic development and, as I said, broader freedom issues in the world because the way that we look at development is an increase in the range of choice and the importance of choice for the people that we're studying. And so that's not just sort of a narrow economic look. Mm-hmm. It uh, really has to do with, with rights and that that's very much a part of development broadly understood. Very impressive. Ian, it will come as a surprise to most Americans that the United States does not make the top 10 list of free countries in the world. What is the Human Freedom Index and what are the personal and economic factors that you include in ranking countries? The Human Freedom Index is, as you mentioned, a a global measurement of civil, economic, and personal freedoms for 165 countries around the world, 
over the span of a couple of decades. And so what we're looking at are 83 distinct indicators in each country of different freedoms in the in a number of areas that include the rule of law, security and safety, freedom of movement, freedom of religion, freedom of association and assembly, freedom of expression, what we call relationship freedoms. We look at a number of economic freedom indicators like the size of government, the legal system and property rights, whether a country has sound money, the freedom to trade internationally, and regulation of uh, labor and credit and business. When we put all of those different indicators together and rank them on a zero to 10 scale, we get a pretty, what I think is a pretty accurate picture of the state of freedom in the world and within countries. And when we talk about freedom, what we're talking about is the absence of coercive constraint. The idea that you should be able to lead your life as you like, as long as you respect the equal rights of others. Everybody has their own definition of, of freedom. The word is oftentimes misused, but that's our definition. And one of the rules in creating this index is that it's transparent and very clear what we're trying to accomplish. And it is entirely based on the empirical evidence on data. Mm -hmm. Very impressive. And Ian, in your report, you state that human freedom has declined between 2007 to 2019. Then, of course, in 2020, with the coronavirus global pandemic, we saw an even more precipitous decline in personal freedoms. Can you give us some examples of how the pandemic and pandemic-related legislation has impacted our individual freedoms? Because we're coming up on the third anniversary of sheltering in place and how the pandemic really changed our lives. Can you give us some concrete examples of how our freedoms were curtailed to a certain extent as a result of the pandemic shelter-in-place measures? Sure. And I should say that, of course, we all remember how dramatically different life was once the coronavirus procedures and, uh, and laws were put in place. Those measures really affected freedom in a, in a severe way, but also in an extensive way. And so what we find in the report is that from the year 2019 to the year 2020, 94% of the world's population saw a decline in freedom. I think that's fairly unprecedented in all the years that we've been measuring these indicators. And it wasn't just a, a sort of a slow decline, which had already been happening from the year 2007 to 2019, where we found that almost 80% of the world's population was losing freedom. But that was a slow descent until it fell off a cliff in, in the year 2020. Really, the drop there was steep and it set us back by more than two decades in mm. terms of the freedoms we had gained. And so then the question becomes, one of the questions becomes, to what extent will the world regain its freedoms compared to where we were at in January of 2020? I think it's fair to say that uh, we're still not as free as we were in January of 2020. But if you look at the kinds of freedoms that we lost that year, mm -hmm. Virtually everything was affected. Certainly freedom of movement mm -hmm. uh, was affected. I mean, not just within cities, 
but internationally, mm-hmm. came to a halt. Economic freedoms were severely affected. Trade came to a, to a halt or basically slowed down severely, including because of COVID uh, laws. We find that freedom of expression was strongly affected. And when I cite these indicators, mm-hmm. we're talking about th- this happening in rich countries and poor countries and democracies and non-democracies, certainly to different degrees. But it wasn't like there was a pattern where certain kinds of countries were not affected. All countries were affected, and they were affected to a, a pretty strong degree. We saw that the COVID pandemic accelerated some of these trends that we've been seeing over the years. Free speech scholars, for example, talk about the free speech recession that had been going on globally, again, in democracies and non-democracies for many years now, but that was really accelerated during during the crisis. And of course, the more authoritarian governments took full advantage of COVID as a pretext to crack down on their political enemies or dissenters and the like, and we saw that happening to severe degrees in China and Hong Kong and uh, Turkey and in El Salvador and on and on. But there were also excesses in, in most of the world to different degrees. Freedom of association and freedom of assembly were also impacted. There were, there were inconsistencies in the way that the rules were applied, sometimes with coercion, sometimes without a clear rule about who it applies to or when. Mm-hmm. And that also led to a big and noticeable erosion in the rule of law, because the rule of law is supposed to guard against that kind of arbitrary rule. And yet, really what, what we saw during uh, the crisis, which is what happens during, what typically does happen during, during crises, whether it's war or natural disaster or the like, people are more willing to cede power to, to government to try to solve the problem. And, and this was an extreme case of that, not just in one or two countries, but around the world and affecting such a wide uh, range of freedoms. Mm-hmm. So Ian, the longer term trend, even before the pandemic, was for a decline in personal freedom around the world. And as you said, rich countries, poor countries, authoritarian countries, free countries, what are the causes apart from the pandemic? For instance, globalization, the advent of the internet, social media, censorship, of course, public health measures. What, what were the causes that we can identify and how can we correct this so we can get back to where we were, as you said, in 2007, I guess, was like the peak of peak freedom. And since then, it's been a steady decline. What were the causes for this? And how can we get back to 2007 peak freedom conditions? Well, that is the the question of our times. And that's an excellent question. And I, I wish that there was one good answer to it. As far as I know, nobody's given one good, compelling answer to it. There are many different answers and possible explanations. Of course, what we've seen in the last, oh, 15 years or so, to various degrees, and now more and more, is the rise of, of populism, both on the right and on the left, again, affecting so much of the world, whether it's democracies or non-democracies, whether mm-hmm. it's rich countries or poor countries. And 
I think that there's a number of factors that that have led to that. Of course, these last couple of decades have been decades of rapid change and actually rapid human progress. We are living probably in the best of times in all of the history of humanity, where if you just look at virtually any indicator of well-being, people's lives around the world, and especially in developing countries, have improved dramatically. So it becomes, it could become kind of a mystery to, to say, well, if things are getting so much better than ever before, why are people rejecting the very policies and institutions that led to, to those improvements in the form of right and left extremism and protests and manifestations in countries as varied as Mexico or Chile or Turkey or Hungary, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And again, I think that that there are different factors that explain things for different countries. The story that explains why Chile, despite it being one of the great development success stories, decided to overturn the policies that led to that and elect a far-left government mm-hmm. that proposed changing the Constitution that actually enabled those those successes. And the, the story that explains it is very different than what happened in Mexico, where you now have a, a leftist populist uh, demagogue who is erasing gains th- that occurred there. But those two stories are very different. They're very, very different, too, from what has happened in the United States or in other countries. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a, there, there are different factors that can, can explain it. Ideology plays a role. If you look at Chile, you see that the country was clearly progressing by virtually every measure Mm -hmm. in a way that set it way ahead of the rest of Latin America. But the architects of that progress were mostly economists Mm -hmm. and the far left, pretty much their narrative dominated for several decades, the cultural spaces, the media, the universities even the business associations and so on. So that if you ask Chileans, they would tell you it really hasn't benefited everybody, certainly not equally. Uh, the country is becoming less less equal. Uh, there's no mobility, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is false, and you can show it with the data. Mm-hmm. And, it, and when you look at the data, it's you, you see how how much progress Chile has done compared to the countries that, <laughs> that it didn't uh, undertake these kinds of reforms. So you you see that ideology certainly does play a role. I think unfulfilled expectations also does. You have a country like Chile that's growing rapidly for decades. And then because of domestic political conditions, it hits very low growth for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And that creates discontent. And that helps to spur the kind of discontent that we saw there. It's a kind of a Tocqueville effect, too, which is that as countries progress, people start seeing problems in society, like, let's say, child labor, that used to be commonplace and nobody would even comment on it. But then once that becomes less common, people are more outraged about it and and feel incensed that how can they live in such a country that could even have any of that one. In fact, what they're seeing is progress, but mm-hmm. what what they interpreted it as is 
some lack of progress. Can I jump in there? You know, it seems as though whether it's the United States, Chile, Mexico, and of course I've lived in all three. I lived in Chile, I lived in Mexico, and of course I'm, I'm an American. It seems as though the common thread in those three examples that you gave me is economics, economic growth, the economic pie getting bigger, and individual slices of that pie for each individual, ideally also growing. And Slower growth, slower economic growth, I guess, is a common factor in in all of those three countries. We certainly saw that here in the United States, in the heartland, in states like Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, where which is now known as the Rust Belt, where the the jobs, the well-paid jobs that, that were common there during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s have all but disappeared. And the, you know, the residents of those states feel as though they've gotten that their economic livelihood for their, their children, their grandchildren just isn't there. The opportunities aren't there. And again, it comes back to economics, economic growth. That seems to be a common factor in those three examples that you gave us, slowing economic growth or no economic growth so that, you know, the economic pot, there's just not enough new growth to go around and you hang on to what you got. And the left comes along and says, well, we, you know, you got too much and you got to redistribute it to the, uh, to the poor. That's, that's my view. There is something to that. I do think that, for example, the financial crisis in the United States mm-hmm. had a, had a big effect. It mm-hmm. had a big effect on not only the policy reaction from, from Washington, where there was this massive response that was the growth of government and government spending and, and redistribution and so on. In each case, the effect of a slowdown in growth or the effect of globalization has also been different. Chile mm-hmm. did not experience uh, that kind of manufacturing uh, problem, but it did experience a slowdown in, in growth because of the policies of a leftist government that came in that really discouraged growth, but, but it was based on that na- that leftist narrative that was repeated over and over again. So it was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy there. But yes, I think that uh, economics plays uh, an important role. It affects people differently. Is that enough to explain the shift in sentiment, let's say in the United States, that has led so much of the population to support populist type politicians and even policies. I don't know. I think it has to be more, more than that. Let's come back to, of course, the phenomenon of social media and the internet. Some say that the, the 2016 election was heavily influenced by social media. Some say that the increased polarization in the United States, and not only the United States, but uh, throughout the world, increased polarization between the left and the right and cultural polarization is in part due to social media. Do you have a, a sense of that at all? That may be. What we see every now and then in history is that technologies, and especially technologies in communication, can really disrupt society for a while until things get back into control or a more normal type of setting. We saw that with with the invention of the printing press Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe. And eventually, of course, that that led to 
the great wars of religion that enveloped the, the, the continent and killed, you know, millions of people until there was some sort of a, a broad solution to religious differences and, and toleration of different views in different er- areas, religious views. We saw that with the, with the invention of the radio in the early part of last century. That was really a tool that especially uh, Adolf Hitler used to gain power mm-hmm. and to achieve what he he did in such a short time that was really a culmination of 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 a certain kind of populism but we also saw it in the used in a different way in all countries including the united states roosevelt used his famous fireside chats in a way that had never been possible before he was in your living room we're so used to that uh, today that was brand new and that certainly affected politics. And now with social media, the same kind of disruption is happening and you see extreme voices. And then there's the whole debate about misinformation or the bias of big tech companies, whether they have one or not. And, and the result is that there's a lot of debate about what the effect is. And usually what happens is what you might call or what the the free speech scholar Jacob Minchingama calls elite panic. Oh, we have to do something about this. And so currently in Europe and in the United States, for example, you see both the left and the right, both parties advocating for regulation of the big tech companies, for Mm -hmm. example. It doesn't take much. You can threaten regulation and not actually get regulation in order to quell speech. And so what we've seen also, and we put this up in the Human Freedom Index as well, is the rise of self-censorship. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's also happening all around the world. So yes, I think that all of this creates a sort of moment of intolerance that is not healthy for free societies, but that we're all trying to navigate through and, and negotiate with. And we all have different ideas about how to deal with, uh, with this. My own preference in terms of free speech is that we should stick as, as much as possible to, to free speech rather than engage in elite panic and impose rules that will make things actually worse. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, coming back to your point about self-censorship, each one of us has it within ourselves to not self-censor. Because self-censoring, you are you self-censor, you are limiting your own freedoms, your freedom of thought, your freedom of expression, your freedom of association. So if we can get away, if we can move away from that self-censorship, that would go some way, I think, to address some of the erosions in our freedoms of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of association. But we have it within ourselves to make that change. That's, that's my thought. What do you think? That's absolutely right. But in a culture or in a society where the cultural trends have included various degrees of, of cancel culture, yes, oftentimes you have to be brave uh, in order to do that. And it may not be worth you saying what you think about something because you will suffer real life consequences as a result or even reputational consequences or whatever, even if it's entirely unfair or uncalled for. So that, again, is one of the things that I think societies are are navigating through uh, right now. There's also a backlash against that. And and this is 
different societies dealing with these issues and trying to figure out how best to, to, to deal with them and how best to understand them. There's a whole discussion about what is free speech, after all. Mm-hmm. Isn't canceling something also part of freedom? You have the freedom to say, this guy shouldn't have a job there, right? But I'm also concerned with that trend because it, it reflects intolerance and you have to have tolerance in any free society. So if you have this cultural shift towards intolerance Mm -hmm. and then it ends up affecting the way that companies behave or the way that groups of friends or any group of people behave, you're actually affecting free speech itself. You're affecting the culture of free speech. And when the culture is affected, it's only a matter of time before the policies and the institutions that support free speech are affected because policies are downstream from from culture. And I think in the United States, we are in this odd situation where I think the culture of free speech is has been very eroded, but the First Amendment is still very strong. So legally, we are a free speech, a very free speech country, but culturally, not so much as before. Mm-hmm. Ian, give me a sense uh, with the Cato Institute. Of course, you've prepared this this great report. It's an annual report. You, uh, it's data driven. Do you have recommendations? Do you have prescriptions for, for instance, here in the United States? Do you meet with the Congress or members of the Congress, and based on this, based on the evidence of the erosion of freedoms, do you, do you have legislative? prescriptions, for instance, to Congress or in in other countries? Well, that, in fact, is the work of the Cato Institute, where where I work, uh, where we have a whole set of scholars and people working in different areas, whether it's tech or welfare policy or taxing and spending or legal issues. We, We work on a whole range of public policy issues, including international issues. And uh, the whole purpose of the think tank is to do precisely that, to come up with very specific analyses and policy recommendations that are consistent with greater human freedom mm-hmm. and, of course, international peace. And so this Human Freedom Index is the 30,000-foot view of mm-hmm. the state of freedom in, in the world. And then the rest of the work that we do here can be very focused on specific issues, what to do mm-hmm. about the water crisis in developing countries, for example, mm-hmm. or the pension, public pension systems in crisis, then we we drill down on individual studies and do make recommendations on those things. Mm-hmm. Well, Ian, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, I, I think that we are at a moment where it is very important to regain our freedoms because what we have seen in the past several decades, certainly in this era of globalization, is a tremendous amount of, of human progress in terms of lifespans going up, and in terms of infant mortality rates going down, in terms of access to safe drinking water, in terms of really hundreds and even thousands of indicators of human well-being that have improved dramatically and have coincided with globalization, which which is another way of saying increases in a whole range of, of freedoms. And so we can say that freedom plays a central role 
in human progress. And in the last many years, with the rise of populism and nationalisms of different kinds and those views having more of a dominant role in major parties in the United States and around the world, that importance of freedom, that appreciation of its role has taken a backstage, I'm afraid. But what this study is saying is that you have to put that uh, idea of freedom back centrally into play in economics, in personal issues, and in, in civil uh, areas. And you see that, the, that those are very much related to if you want to live in a country with a high level of personal freedoms, you better pick a country that has a relatively high level of economic freedoms. Mm -hmm. The two go hand in hand. It's very hard to have a low level of economic freedom and try to maintain other freedoms. So freedom in all its dimensions are important. And that's what the data is telling us. Well, Ian, I'd like to thank you for being our guest today and for the great work that you're doing, both with the, the Human Freedom Index and more generally the, the policy initiatives of the Cato Institute. And how can our listeners follow you? Well, you, you can follow me on Twitter at Vasquez, V-A-S-Q-U-E-Z, Ian, I-A-N, or you can go to the Cato Institute website, which is cato.org. Ian, we appreciate the work that you do and that the Cato Institute does, and I look forward to having you back again real soon. Thanks very much. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 368. The San Francisco Experience is marking its third year on the air. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music are among the 19 platforms that carry the podcast, and we have listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Mm -hmm.